Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I'm your host, Ben Popper, joined as I often am by my colleague, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing well. So we have another sponsored podcast series for you, and we have a great guest today, Prateek Water, who is the SVP of Development Platform and Experiences at Intuit. And we're going to be talking about accelerating development velocity through AI ops and investment in, in open source. Ryan, I know this topic is near and dear to our heart. We published a great post on our own blog True. from one of our engineers, how to uh, you know, balance developer velocity with burnout. And then recently, you wrote a great piece about what it means to be performant and whether that you know refers mm-hmm. to the software itself or in some cases, building the right tool for the criteria you have set out, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, without further ado, we'd like to invite Prateek on the show to discuss his take on a bunch of these topics. Prateek, welcome. Thank you, Benjamin and Ryan, and uh, looking forward to this conversation. So we always start out, just situate our listeners a little bit, tell them a bit about how you got into the technology industry, uh, you know, a little bit of early education and career, and then how you found yourself in the role you're at today. Well, uh, I'll start with my early background. I am actually uh, born, uh, raised in Kenya. So uh, if you're aware, that's a country in East Africa. I am of uh, Indian descent, but uh, I was born in Kenya. So was my dad and my grandfather immigrated to Kenya at uh, the early age of 12. So mm-hmm. so effectively Kenyan. Uh, and uh, well, I guess, uh, you know, I've been very uh, technologically inclined from mm-hmm. the get-go. Uh, and yeah. I like to tell the story that growing up in Kenya, I didn't have access to computers or software or, you know, knew anything about it. But I did know how to fix toasters and uh, you know, uh, little gadgets and devices that broke down around the house. So that's kind of, of my early introduction to yes. engineering. Uh, electrical engineering first. That sounds Electrical cool. engineering and electronics. And that was sort of my passion. So uh, I actually did my undergraduate degree at uh, King's College London. Uh, and again, focused on computer systems and electronics. And uh, my early introduction to computers was a Commodore 64. That's kind of very mm, early classic, basic programming classic. that I started learning before I went into college. And uh, yeah, me too. There you go. So, uh, yeah. so then, uh, you know, as I did my undergraduate, I very quickly or slow, I guess, started migrating to the software aspects of the field. Uh, you know, started doing early digital signal processing based uh, products, and then eventually just graduated into sort of more mainstream software development. Very cool. And, um, Short story is eventually I, you know, uh, graduated and uh, I had an offer to work at a startup in the U.S. I was pursuing a Ph.D., but I got an offer to work as a startup and I took that opportunity and said, I'd always come back to a Ph.D., unfortunately. <laughs> back, so. All right. Still time. And you were at a company, uh, Appalytics, that was acquired by Intuit where you were the founder and CEO? That's correct. Uh, my my career journey has been uh, startups all the way, starting with my first mm-hmm. job. And uh, Aplatix was a company that I co-founded uh, and led uh, until the acquisition by Intuit. Uh, it was sort of at the beginning of the cloud-native uh, ecosystem journey. Uh, a lot of uh, mm. focus around companies moving to the cloud uh, and you know, as we were looking at that transition, one of the areas that has always bugged me when I've been doing my startups is uh, every time I sort of start from ground zero, 
you know, build up a development environment and a deployment environment. And uh, with cloud, it, it always felt like, okay, maybe this was sort of the, the nirvana. It would essentially allow us to move <laughs> faster and uh, have right. these capabilities, you know, uh, or, or sort of modular components that you could quickly leverage and build, you know, the starting block business. If somebody... Yeah, hasn't hasn't created a cloud company named Nirvana. We're missing out. That's there you good. go. <laughs> somebody, somebody in marketing needs to get on that. So the company was acquired, um, and you moved inside of into it. And uh, did you immediately move to the role you're in now, or was there an evolution that brought you there? I think it's an evolution. Uh, I was initially, you know, the company was acquired because Intuit was uh, at sort of the early uh, phase of transitioning from uh, sort of a, a data center centric company to essentially move mm. to more of a modern uh, cloud native environment moving into the right. cloud uh, and so mm -hmm. you know the the expertise that was needed was really uh, you know come a systems background that would essentially allow us to you know move the company into the cloud so that's mm -hmm. kind of where we started and focused on and the last you know five years that I've been here you know we've essentially transitioned the entire company onto the cloud, we've closed our data centers, uh, we've built a modern development environment uh, and a SaaS you know, environment uh, that is essentially cloud native. When I say cloud native, it's using the foundational blocks like Kubernetes and containers and you know, high mm -hmm. level uh, AI and data-based approaches. Mm -hmm. So, and about mm -hmm. three years ago, I think we declared uh, a vision to actually build a platform to essentially transition into it into a platform into an AI driven expert platform, and mm -hmm. so with with that vision, you know, we had the foundational blocks that we had been working towards, you know, as you know, becoming cloud native, you know, becoming more capability oriented, more microservices oriented, uh, and it sort of gave us a good foundation to essentially start building, you know, the platform. Mm -hmm. So this uh, the platform. This is for external company, com, uh, customers, or is this for your internal developers? It's both, uh, you know, and it's it's very interesting to think about it this way because when we talk about an AI-driven, you know, expert platform, mm -hmm. the thing that immediately jumps to mind is our customer-facing products, right? Uh, you know, whether right. it's, you know, the tax side or it's the small business side of the house, you know, how do we enable these customers, right? Our our founding tenet has always been, you know, that uh, we want our customers, we essentially to save more or to have more money in their pockets, uh, to work less, uh, and to really have the confidence in their financial, you know, uh, identity. Right. So, so with those three things, you know, the focus has been around uh, all the data that we have uh, in these products. How do we leverage the data to actually make the lives of our customers easy? And that's always been the focus, right, as we started it. But very quickly, we realized that our internal systems and capabilities that we're building to power these products also mm -hmm. had the same uh, requirements, right? Uh, so, for example, when we talk about, uh, you know, our observability platform, which is geared to very quickly detect, you know, any issues that happen in our products, uh, you know, we quickly found that we needed a way to capture all of the data, the operational data, that was going into the system, and then essentially build and train models to, you know, drive anomaly detection, for example. So the mm -hmm. same techniques that we were using externally are also being used internally. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ryan and I have had a number of guests on the show recently to discuss things in this uh, area, 
those are mostly observability vendors. Was there a reason that you decided to build that stuff internally? Or when you say build it, do you mean relying a bit on a mix of internal tooling and external vendors? It's always a mix, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, as part of our cloud journey, you know, one of the one of the tenets that we we set out for ourselves is that uh, you know a lot of innovation happens in the in the open source world, mm-hmm. and our idea was, you know, how do we capture that innovation? How do we actually leverage that, contribute that back, but then bring it in? Right? Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, we have very much focused. Uh, our efforts on enabling the community at large to build some of these solutions. And then, of course, you know, uh, combine that with the uh, best of class vendor solutions that are available so that we have, uh, you know, a hybrid approach. That we do. So part of your purview is is uh, developer experience at Intuit, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So it's you have, I think, like 7,000 developers. What is your your day to day there with this? That number of developers and how are you working with them to improve their experience yeah it it uh you know yes there are over 7000 developers uh and as i said the 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 platform that we have built uh is utilized by all of the developers at intuit uh now it it covers a gamut from uh, you know if you start with the core compute and storage and networking you know arena Going all the way to you know things like observability, anomaly detection, our UX fabric, uh, which powers all of the user experiences that our customers face. Uh, so all of those things uh, actually uh, culminate into our what we call our development portal. So we have one development mm-hmm. portal that every developer at Intuit is familiar with, and it provides them with all the basic tools that they would need. Uh, to create these experiences, whether they want to create a web app or a library or a mobile app uh, or you know a microservice, for example, uh, mm. there are what there are what we call paved roads that are available, uh, and within minutes, you know any developer at Intuit will be able to essentially um, have a an environment that is very ready uh, yeah. with all of the core building blocks, and that's how they start. So mm-hmm. the day-to-day job is really making sure that uh, you know that core platform uh, is operating and available yeah. for all our developers. It's really interesting to hear you say that. We spoke with some of your colleagues on the design system side, and you know they had similar ideas about empowering developers by making sure that they could easily access what they needed to in terms of you know these are the totems of the brand. These are you know what we think about design, but you can then go off with these guideposts and build something of your own. And then it will be easy to bring it back sort of into the centerfold and use it, even if you're in a very different division, you know, and I'm sure there's lots of different parts across into it. Ryan and I also had an interesting conversation recently with the folks at Spotify who had built this developer portal and they would go out and they'd be demoing something. And all everybody wanted to know about was the developer portal tool in the background, you know, mm-hmm. so they eventually open sourced that. Seems yeah. like it's a it's a really integral part at a large organization, especially one that's fast growing, to empower developers is to have a developer portal where they can go and find the tools they need. And like you said, the paved roads that show them where they should, how they can travel, you know, from the, the tools to the building to the finished product. Yeah, and it also enables, I mean, and by the way, we've worked extensively with the Spotify team because it's, you know, uh, the portals are very similar, except, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it, there's a lot that goes on into building this portal. So, um, yeah. And uh, but the 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 common theme though is you know how do you 
enable your developers to quickly do what they need to do without getting mm-hmm. with all of the you know uh, bits and pieces that you know are not directly in the in their line of sight, right? So things like security, for example, I mean, you know, it's one of those areas where Intuit is heavily focused on. You know, our products need to be very secure. But training 7,000 developers to be well-versed in every facet of security is almost impossible. So how do you essentially, you know, uh, build these capabilities so that they don't have to think about the basic, you know, issues surrounding security, but they're just available to them as they build their products? So the developer portal thing, um, you know, I had worked at uh, Grubhub and was trying to solve a lot of those issues. Um, What other things do you have going on to kind of help with the developer velocity and happiness and make sure that, you know, these huge teams are are getting things done the way that they need to? I think developer velocity is, uh, you know, we call it, actually, we don't call it developer velocity. Let me, let me emphasize that. We actually call it development sure. velocity. So, and there's a big, big discussion, uh, you know, because every time I've talked to companies and teams when we start focusing on developer velocity then you quickly get into you know how do you make your developers more performant or productive versus really how do you make your overall development cycle more productive so when you start thinking about that then you really have to look at all the different aspects of product development right and it starts with you know uh you know do you have the right design product management you know uh, product development functions do you have the right tooling? But also, do you are you measuring the the right outcomes, right? Uh, right. So it, mm-hmm. Intuit, when we when we talk about development velocity, we fundamentally started with all we care about is ultimately what gets shipped to our customers. Uh, we don't care about lines of code or story cycles or you know we care about what eventually gets shipped to your mm-hmm. customer. And when you start with that basis, you know you, you then have a very, very common and aligned uh, goal uh, across you know the companies, right, and the and the groups, right. So um, starting with uh, you know all of our software assets, you know whether it's a library or a mobile app, you know we essentially measure the same thing. Whether it's an AI model, you know same thing. You know what does it take for you to actually get this into production? Uh, and how fast are you getting it into production? What's your frequency of getting it or released into production? So when you start there, you know, then it becomes a lot easier. Uh, and then we really start tracking back from there and saying, okay, what are the things that are preventing you from moving faster? Mm. And having a centralized portal like the development portal where every software asset uh, is, is available, cataloged, uh, we're tracking it. Uh, all of that data is moving into an operational data lake. Uh, you know, then we have the right units of measurement and really starting to look at, you know, things the right way. Very cool. So we've chatted a little bit now about, you know, how you prioritize uh, productivity, but, you know, balance that with developer happiness and how you think about productivity in a more holistic way. You mentioned the developer portal being a key to that. What role does AI play in helping to achieve, you know, some of the same goals we're discussing here? Yeah. So our... Our AI strategy is, uh, you know, I think it's sort of unique in two ways, right? So, you know, everyone talks about AI, right? We And uh, everyone has, you know, uh, most likely a data lake where they're capturing the data, they're running models, they're training models against the data and generating insights, right? 
what we've done differently is that we have essentially combined our our AI approach with also our people approach, right? So mm-hmm. we not only invest in the data, you know, the AI and the models, right? But we are trying to blend, you know, the digital and the human uh, aspects of this, right? We are like, for example, our financial experts. So when you are uh, looking at, uh, you know, uh, TurboTax and you're trying to file your taxes, yes, the system is actually giving you a lot of insights based on the data that we have available, right? But uh, as you, you know, start looking at this and you have an issue, then we can actually combine it with human expertise that can actually help you, you know, looking at those insights. So that hybrid approach is a little different, you know, and that's sort of the foundation of our AI you know, driven expert plan, right? But it's interesting to hear you say, you know, hey, we can, you know, prompt you. Maybe you want to try this deduction. Maybe you could, you know, look into this option, but then have a human available. It reminds me a lot of a startup we interviewed recently. Do not pay. Translating between legalese and and things regular people can understand. That's a great uh, application sometimes of AI to have kind of like a decision tree, a language tree to walk you through making what would otherwise be decisions that to you are very complicated or a bit obtuse yeah and, and you know it goes back to the you know like we talked about the platform right like how do you enable your developers to actually make use of these very easily right so mm. when you build the right platform then the 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 developers actually do not have to worry about being experts in the ai domain but they mm. can actually utilize the platform for what they need very quickly to generate the insights that they need right so I think that really helps, right, is, is building the right platform to actually enable, you know, uh, you, you can't have 7,000, you know, AI experts in the company. But each of <laughs> it would be expensive. Actually, it would be very expensive. Each of them does have a lot of insights in the particular domain that they're working in. And so then the, the question is, how do you enable them? How do you arm them to actually develop this, these tool sets and, and capabilities? Yeah. It's interesting to talk about the uh, having the AI and uh, people work together, because I think We've had a couple articles about, you know, people worrying about are the, the robots coming to take your job? Um, and c- so can you talk a little bit about how they're working together and what they're actually doing to make make things better? I, I think, you know, uh, so first of all, getting, you know, the, the, the that whole notion, again, blending it with, you know, the human expertise. I think we, we underrate the human expertise that comes in. AI models mm. can help you, you know, generate insights. Uh, but how do you use those insights to actually, you know, make sure that you're getting the right results? There is mm-hmm. still a human element to this, right? So when we, for example, developed our, our expert platform, the whole goal was really to arm our experts, right? Uh, whether they are, then they're usually not into it, uh, you know, direct into it employees, but you know, they're at the forefront of adopting these AI tools and providing invaluable feedback, uh, you know, back to us because as they're working with the customers, they're helping us train the best AI models possible, you know. Mm-hmm. So that data coming back as they're working with customers is so critical, you know, and that's what people forget that, you know, once you create an AI model, you have to train it. And training it doesn't just mean giving it more data. Actually, you need to figure out what's the best feedback that you're getting. And then, you know, essentially feeding that into the system as well. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely uh, reinforcement learning there in both directions, like you said. 
Is it looking to the data and finding the best solutions? But then when it's implemented, which is equally interesting to the user, do they have a positive outcome? So you got to measure it on both sides and tweak the model that way. When you say that people don't have to be experts in AI on, you know, when they're on your development team to use it, is there a drag and drop functionality? Hey, you know, I, I'm building this new feature and it's helping people who have moved between two states and have built a new house. I want to make sure they get the right X, Y, Z. When they enter their information, then they're going to be fed into the AI pipeline here. And so I'm dropping this node or how does it work? It does. I mean, so, you know, uh, we, we're sort of at the leading edge when, when we talk about, you know, what we do, it's things like personalized mm. recommendations, predictions that we do for our customers, right? These these are, are extremely critical and those are uh, automated in the system. So we have platform capabilities and model designs that enable us to custom train the models for individual customers. Uh, you know, literally millions of unique models, they are, tra- they are tailored to our customers are run, you know, on, a, on an automated basis, right? And this allows us to very, very, very quickly uh, tailor the predictions that we're seeing, right? To give you an idea, we have about 58 billion machine learning predictions that we do every day. <laughs> uh, we have 730 million AI-driven customer interactions each year, right? Uh, and we have over 2 million AI-driven personalized models, personalized models, just for like categorization, right? Uh, so when you think about this, you know, the system is highly tuned, you know, to actually, you know, do it for each customer, you know, should the need arise. Right? And these are done during our peak. For example, we, you know, when we go through our tax peak, you know, uh, this is a very critical period uh, that most customers are filing their taxes. The average response time when we're running this model is about 500 milliseconds, right? So these models are being are, are delivering intense very, very quickly for customers. It's interesting to hear you say that. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting about the AI field is that it's a place where there's obviously a lot of corporate interest, but also a lot of open source interest and also a lot of academic interest it seems like this would be a very attractive position in some ways to people who are at the cutting edge of the field because, as you point out, there's so many fascinating data points and so much sort of human engagement built into that. It'd be really interesting for them to study. What are you excited about? Like when you look to the future, when you think about the roadmap, I know you're not going to give away any secrets, but when you think about you know the future of what you know, you're going to be doing for the next year or two, uh, whether that's helping your developers be more productive or tapping into some of what's cutting edge in AI, what are you getting excited about? Yeah, I think for, for me, what's exciting is actually the innovation that I'm beginning to see in this space, right? So everyone does AI, everyone talks about AI. What we're missing, actually, you know, when I think back to, you know, my journey, you know, starting on the whole cloud ecosystem, the cloud native foundation, uh, I'm actually seeing a very similar journey beginning in the, in the AI space, right? Uh, so the open source infrastructure that is being built uh, for AI, for data, uh, is what gets me excited right now. I, I see almost mm-hmm. that that same kind of transition happening as like containers and Kubernetes brought to sort of the cloud native ecosystem. Uh, you know, for example, we have an open source project that uh, we, we contributed to the CNCF. Uh, it's called Argo. Now, Argo started with uh, one fundamental uh, uh, unit, which was Argo Workflows. Originally, we intended Argo Workflows to be used for internal DevOps pipelines. 
what we're finding out now is that it's used increasingly by a lot of companies for AI and data pipelines, whether it's ingestion pipelines, whether it's you know uh, training pipelines to essentially run these things. So that excites me that we're beginning to see this. Uh, in fact, about uh, two weeks ago, we launched uh, a new open source project called Numa Project, which essentially uh, open sources a lot of the tools and capabilities that we use internally uh, for driving AI pipelines and AI models, right? Uh, and I see that that ecosystem is actually developing very fast. So that excites me a lot that we're beginning to see a lot of innovation happening in the open now and in the community where we can partner and do these. Very cool. That's very cool. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I want to shout out a community member who came on Stack Overflow and helped save some knowledge from the dustbin of history. Bill Carwin was awarded a Lifeboat badge for saving this question, understanding MySQL licensing. There's a lot to unpack in here, so we'll put it in the show notes, but Bill, appreciate your answer. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can email us, podcast at Stack Overflow, with questions and suggestions. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Um, I'm Ryan Donovan. I'm the editor of the blog here at Stack Overflow, stackoverflow.blog. Uh, and you can find me at on Twitter at rthordonovan. And I'm Pratik Waters, SVP of Developer Experiences at Intuit. And you can find me on Twitter at pwater. Looking forward to hear from you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.